and they lived happily ever after. The end. That is the common way to end a story that begins once upon a time. We call those fairy tales, and fairy tales, if you're not familiar, are imaginary stories for children that are filled with magic and fanciful people and places. And we all love a good fairy tale because it echoes the real story of the Bible. This vision of fairy tales was held by two close friends who wrote some of the most iconic fiction of the 20th century. These two friends were named C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. After the great battle at the end of C.S. Lewis's books, The Chronicles of Narnia, the characters discover that the new Narnia has been the, their real country the whole time. Sorry if I spoiled the ending for you. And they have nothing left now but to go further up and further in. Here's what it says at the ending. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion, referring to Aslan, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story, and their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That's Revelation 21, friends. Chapter one of the Bible, in a certain sense, begins at Revelation 21. J.R.R. Tolkien, C.S. Lewis's good friend, wrote a similar series of stories called The Lord of the Rings. And after the ring is destroyed in Mount Doom, Sam wakes up from his sleep, surprised he is alive, and surprised to see Gandalf. And then he says, Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? And here's what we read in Tolkien's words. A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf, and then he laughed and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment for days upon days without count. See, the end of the story of the Bible is really the beginning. It's the beginning of a never-ending, ever-increasing happiness in the hearts of the redeemed as God displays more and more and more of his infinite and inexhaustible greatness and glory for the enjoyment and eternal happiness of his people. That's the end of the story, which is really the beginning of the great story. So this is just absolutely pure joy to preach this morning. I hope that Revelation 21 will be a deep encouragement to all of our hearts. We're going to see four beautiful truths in this particular chapter about our future home as God's people. Number one, and this will be the longest point, we will live in God's presence. We will live in God's perfect presence. In verse one, we read that this present earth and these present heavens above will pass away when Jesus Christ returns to destroy his enemies and consummate his kingdom, which is what we've been reading about in the previous chapters of the book of Revelation. Well, really the entire book of Revelation, but especially focused on chapter 17 and following as we've rounded out near the end. The future is pictured here as a physical future. This present earth, brothers and sisters, does not 
give way to some purely existential spiritual existence somewhere in the clouds above. The old rugged cross gets it partly right. If we are called in this life, dying in Christ, we will go to a place far away. But if Christ returns before we die, we ain't going nowhere. He's coming to set up shop here in renewed earth for all eternity. The first heaven and the first earth will give way to a new heaven and a new earth. God, what about 2 Peter 3, 10 through 13? You've read the Bible, haven't you? Well, I'm glad you asked. There, that passage specifically talks about the earth being burned up with intense heat. But need I remind you that fire oftentimes is a pure form of purification in the Bible. The earth is getting purified and cleansed, not getting destroyed. The biblical vision of the future is not about the end of creation, but about the beginning of a new creation. And it's coming down from heaven. Did you see that in verse 1? How it's, it's coming down. The, I saw the holy city, verse 2, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. This is not our own doing. This is God's doing. This is something God is bringing in. In verse 2, we read about the absence of the sea. What's that all about? Those of you who love to fish and sail and water ski and ponder the expanse and beauty of the ocean, be like, what? That's, that's not good. I like all that stuff. Well, you need not worry. John does not mean that there won't be bodies of water in the new earth for us to enjoy. The sea was typically regarded as symbolic of evil and chaos and anti-kingdom powers with whom God must contend. Don't forget that Revelation 13.1 and also Revelation 17.2 and 15, that the sea there is the origin of the beast as well as the pagan and rebellious nations that oppose the kingdom of God. And God is getting rid of them. It's, it's the place of the dead in Revelation 20, verse 13, and the location of the world's idolatrous trade activity. Remember in Revelation 18, the merchants and the sailors? This is all happening on the sea. It's coming out of the sea. It's taking place on the sea. God's getting rid of all that evil influence. Thus, when, God's, or when John says that he sees no sea there, it's John's way of saying that in the new creation, all such evil and corruption and unbelief and darkness will be banished forever. There's going to be plenty of lakes, plenty of rivers, plenty of oceans, plenty of beauty, but no danger, no evil, no chaos. When Jesus stilled the storm on the Sea of Galilee, he was giving us a foretaste of heaven. It was his way of saying that one day he will rid the heavens, he will rid the earth of all opposition, all rebellion, all chaos, all disturbances, and it will be peace and it will be still. Verse 3 mentions that we will live in intimate and personal communion with our God. I heard a loud voice, verse 3 says, from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. No longer will there be any sense of distance between us and God. Never again will you feel that God is absent or God is remote Loneliness will be forever banished from the new heavens and the new earth. Our constant companion, our closest and most intimate friend will be God himself. Yes, God is omnipresent. He fills the galaxies with his glory. But his primary place of residence is with you and with me. If today you don't sense God's nearness, God's comfort, 
reassure yourself that that is not your future. You have a promise of an eternal future where you will always and forever be with God and God always will be forever with you. Notice verse 4 as well. God will heal our past. Verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Our tears will be wiped away. Our pain will be healed. God will wipe away, get this, every tear. Everything that has brought you sadness. Everything that has brought you pain. He will wipe away our tears of grief. For never again will we endure loss. Never again will we have to say farewell to those we love. He will wipe away our tears of pain. Never again will we experience the suffering of illness and the agony of physical trauma. He will wipe away our tears of anxiety. For never again will we fret over an unknown future. He will wipe away our tears of despondency, for never again will we be overwhelmed by the cares of life or overshadowed by the darkness of depression. He will wipe away our tears of fearfulness, for never again will we need to fear the devil or the darkness. He will wipe away our tears of remorse, for never again will we sin. He will wipe away our tears of shame, for never again will we blunder and fall and commit shameful deeds that cause us to hang our heads again in humiliation. He will, he will wipe away our tears of repentance, for never again will we have to apologize or say I'm sorry to God or man. He will wipe away our tears of disappointment, for never again will we experience the sadness and displeasure of falling short of our own expe- expectations, let alone His. He will wipe away our tears of self-pity, for never again will we feel sorry for ourselves. Never again will we become self-absorbed with our own shortcomings and failures. He will even wipe away our holy tears of sympathy, for never again will we need to weep with those who weep. What a day that will be when every tear is dried by the tender and gentle hand of our God. Our tears and our pain have an expiration date, but our joy and delight are just waiting to exponentially surge at His coming. No more death. Not of husbands, wives, aunts, uncles, children, brothers, sisters, grandfathers, grandmothers, cousins, friends, or neighbors. Funeral homes will be put out of business. Cemeteries will be empty, for all will have been raised in glorified bodies that are no longer susceptible to disease or decay. Never again the long meetings at the funeral home deciding on caskets and vaults and limos and flowers. Dave O's out of a job. He'll be happy. No graveside services, no obituaries to be written, no video tributes of a person's life, no eulogies, no flowers to be sent, never again a long caravan of cars with their headlights on, no police escorts, no headstones, no more pain. There'll be no physical pain because of our bodies. They will be transformed and glorified and made like the body of Jesus. Jesus will transform our lowly bodies, Philippians 3.21, to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. That is why there will be no longer any kind of kidney failure or heart disease or diabetes or cancer, no decay, no dissolution. Those of us who live with constant and chronic pain and disability should be especially encouraged and empowered to persevere. The day is coming, and when it comes, it comes forever, never to be reversed, and all pain will be gone. 
And not just physical pain, but emotional pain, marital pain, relational pain, the pain of a wayward child or an unfaithful spouse, the pain of disappointment and loss, indeed the pain of every sort and from every cause, all of it, gone. You, will, you who suffer from depression or anxiety or relentless and crippling fear will forever and finally be set free from all of that. The joy and happiness and elation that will be ours will be immeasurable. Indeed, infinitely exceed anything you have ever experienced in this life or hope to have experienced. This world matters. Look at verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. This world matters everywhere we live, everywhere we work, everywhere we play. Jesus has come to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. To make all things new, not to make all new things. The new earth will be a gigantic sanctuary of eternal delight. And we will experience God's unfiltered, unfettered delight forever. Notice verse 6. God will quench our thirst. Revelation 7, 17, previously promised, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Verse 7 says that God will finally bring us into his forever family. This is one of the times when it's inappropriate to say, will, will be my son or my daughter. It is true that God has sons and daughters, but my son in Revelation always refers to Jesus, the one who receives all the nations as an inheritance. But for us to be called my son is to be told by God that we will enjoy the same status as Jesus. We are heirs of all things. Do you see that in verse 7? The one who conquers will have this heritage and will be, I will be his God and he will be my son. You have the status of Christ. You won't be a God. You won't be reigning over all things, but you will be in reigning with Christ at his side. And notice verse 8, the great promise that God will shut out sin and Satan forever. It's interesting to compare the beginning of Genesis with the end of Revelation, isn't it? Parallels and differences are too important to ignore. In Genesis, the sun is created, and in Revelation, there's no need for one. In Revelation, the new heavens and new earth are created, but in Genesis, the first heaven and the first earth are created. And then in Genesis, the night is established, but in Revelation, there is no night. Genesis 1.10 says that the seas are created. Revelation 21.1 says there are no more seas. The curse is announced in Genesis 3.14 and 15. There's no more curse in Revelation 22.3. Death enters history in Genesis 3.19. Death exits history in Revelation 21.4. Man's driven from paradise in Genesis 3.24. Man's restored to paradise in Revelation 22.14. Sorrow and pain begin in Genesis 3.17. Sorrow, tears, and pain end in Revelation 21.4. The devil appears in Genesis 3, verse 1. The devil disappears in Revelation 21.8. Danny Aiken says, indeed, one of the most wonderful things about the Bible is that in its first two chapters, the devil is not there, and in its last two chapters, the devil is not there. Genesis 1 and 2 
and, or examine Genesis 1 and 2 and you will find no mention of the ancient serpent. Examine Revelation 21 and 22 and you will likewise find no mention of Satan. He's not there. He's in the lake of fire where he will be imprisoned for all eternity. Brothers and sisters, this is almost too good to take in. No more sea because chaos and calamity will be eradicated. No more tears because hurtful memories will be replaced. No more death because mortality will be swallowed up by life. No more mourning because sorrow will be completely comforted. No more crying because the sounds of weeping will be soothed. No more pain because all human suffering will be cured. No more thirst because God will graciously quench all desires. No more wickedness because all evil will be banished. No more temple because the Father and the Son are personally present. No more night because God's glory will give eternal light. No more closed gates because God's doors will always be open. And no more curse because Christ's blood has forever lifted it. That is the good news of Revelation 21. But there's more. There's oh so much more that we're going to consider. That was the longest point, but we still got three to go. So we will live forever in God's presence, in God's perfect presence. But second, we will shelter in God's perfect city. We will shelter in God's perfect city. In verses 9 through 21, God provides a perfect city for us to live in. But it's a very unique city. This city is also a bride, and it's also called the Holy of Holies. So we're going to get to those images in just a moment. But in verses 9 through 14, we see this city called the New Jerusalem, which is a great city. It's a holy city. It's a heavenly city. It's the Lamb City. And John says that it has the glory of God, which he details in verses 11 through 14. We will finally be made into a perfect reflection of God's glory. This city, having the glory of heaven, John tells us, is radiant like the most rare jewels, like jasper, clear as crystal. The city has great high walls, which is a symbol of its security and its stability. We will be safe and secure. It has 12 gates, a sign of great access, since there are three in each direction of the compass, according to verse 13. At the 12 gates are 12 angels, divine honor guards, who protect the gates, even though its gates will never be shut by day. Each of the gates contains all the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. God has been faithful to keep his covenant promises to Abraham and his descendants. Verse 14 further describes the wall by noting the wall has 12 foundations on which are written the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. This may recall Ephesians 2.20, where Paul writes that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Thus, the city will be the dwelling place of the united people of God, Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, whose salvation rests completely on the finished work of Christ. In verses 15 through 17, we read something interesting about this city. It's revealed like it's laid out as a cube, a perfect cube. Now, what's the significance of this? Well, according to 1 Kings 6.20 and 2 Chronicles 3.8 and 9, the number is obviously symbolic, but it recalls and reflects the Holy of Holies. The number is signifying not only perfection, but a city that's large enough to hold all the saints down through the ages, that innumerable multitude that no man can number. According to Revelation 5, 9 and 7, 9, that every tribe, language, people, and nation. God's people are immense, 
and God's people are holy. And the city is also valuable and beautiful, as we read in verses 18 through 21. The wall is built of jasper, and the city is described as being of pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall were adorned with every kind of jewel. There are 12 total, which correspond roughly to the, to the gems of the breastplate of the high priest. The 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each of the gates made of a single pearl. Their value simply cannot be calculated. And the great street of the city that no doubt leads to the throne of God is made of pure gold, transparent as glass. So like the priest of the Old Testament who ministered in the temple, so we as God's people will be servants of God who walk upon gold. That's the beautiful city that's pictured. So we see that we will live in God's perfect presence, but we will also, secondly, shelter in God's perfect city. Thirdly, we will dwell in God's perfect temple. We will dwell in God's perfect temple. Now, John's mixing metaphors here. He sees a people, he sees a city, and then he sees a temple. And it's all meant to be evocative of all that God is fulfilling and all that God is doing in keeping his promises to us. In verses 22 and 23, John looks, and to his amazement, he sees no temple in the city. Now, this is not a contradiction with other verses in Revelation where there was a temple, like 715, 1119, 1415, 15, 5 through 8, Revelation 16, 1 and 17. There's all these references to temple. But this image of being, there being no temple is, this, is a symbolic representation of the eternal state and the new Jerusalem. There is a temple, but it's, a, it's the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. The Lord and the Lamb are its temple. Symbol is giving way to blessed reality. All that was symbolized in the physical temple is now being fulfilled in the Lord and the Lamb. The temple represented God's presence with his people, but believers now have it. There's no need for any kind of spiritual mediation. There's physical presence here. The temple city is permeated, permeated by the Lord's presence and glory, and there is no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The light of the world will be the light who illumines the entire temple city. Verse 24 informs us that by its light, the nations will walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. The multi-ethnic, multicultural nature of eternity is on beautiful display in the glorious light of our God. And these nations and governments present in eternity will be at perfect peace with one another because they all will have the same Father, worship the same Lord, and are indwelt by the same Spirit. And in this temple city, the gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night, no darkness, evil, no terror. Indeed, the redeemed from all the people groups of the world will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, verse 26. And then verse 27 begins with a double negative in Greek. We could say, but no, nothing unclean will ever enter, enter it. No, nothing unclean. Nothing unclean. No one who is detestable. No one who is false or deceitful will enter this temple, temple city. No, only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life, made pure and holy by the cleansing power of the blood of Christ. Our God is a holy God, and the only 
holy people, and only holy people will live with him forever. Will you be there? Will you be there? If you are going to be there, you're, you have to be enrolled. As we said last week, you got to RSVP. And you RSVP by coming to Christ and holding to him as your only Savior and Lord. So fourthly and finally, we've seen that we will live in God's perfect presence. We will shelter in God's perfect city. We will dwell in God's perfect temple. And finally, we'll be nurtured in God's perfect garden. See, the beauty of Revelation 21, brothers and sisters, is we have a vision of a garden temple city that we will live in. And doesn't that capture all the aspects of the biblical story? Right? We need a city that's strong and guarded and protected from all of our enemies. We need a temple where God dwells. And we need a garden where we can be nurtured. And that's all given to us in the vision of Revelation 21 and 22. So this temple city is also a garden city. We see that in Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5. Now, what does this remind us of? The temple reminds us of the Old Testament temple system, sacrificial system. But the, the, the garden reminds us of Eden, going even further back than that. And it's there, just as Adam and Eve were in the beginning, nourished by God. So we will be in the new heavens and earth, new earth, nourished by our God. Notice the river of life that's mentioned in Genesis chapter 2, verse 10, makes another appearance. As a river bright as crystal, glorious and life-giving in its flow from the throne of God and from the Lamb in Revelation 22.1. The river of life returns. Also, this crystal clear river flows through the middle of the street, which is the street of gold mentioned in Revelation 21.21. And on both sides of the river is what? The tree of life the heavenly counterpart to the earthly tree of life in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. It too is a picture of eternal life, but it's also a picture of abundant life as John sees 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. In fact, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. This is another symbolic reminder that there is no pain, sorrow, or death in this heavenly city. We are perfectly cared for. We are perfectly nourished as Adam and Eve were in the garden before the fall. And because of the work of Christ and his success as our redeemer, we have access to the tree of life once more. No longer are we barred out by an angel threatening to kill us if we were to try to come back in. But rather, we are granted access to this tree forever. Eating unhindered with joy. The thing that Adam was under pro, pro, probation to not eat as a test to see if he would trust God, we now have a second Adam who trusted God, fulfilled God's righteousness, and earned access for us, not just into the temple as the veil was torn in two through his death on the cross, but also gives us the tree of life because he passed his probation. And as the second Adam, we have earned access to that tree. The curse is gone. It's vanquished forever. In fact, verse 3 says, there will no longer be anything accursed. Think of all that God cursed in Genesis 2 and 3. He cursed the man. He cursed the woman. He cursed the serpent. He cursed the earth. All that curse 
has been replaced by the throne of God and of the Lamb who will be in it in this beautiful garden city. No longer will there be anything accursed. Genesis 3 is reversed. It's undone forever. All that we lost in the fall, we get back in Christ and more. That's the beauty of the new heavens and new earth. It's not just that God restores this little Eden, beautiful, but we get the full temple garden city that was supposed to come out of Adam and Eve's obedience. We get the full expression of that. Everything that God had promised and more. No more lies or liars, Satan or sin, cancer or slander, temptation or trial, betrayal or blasphemy, fake news or fake friends, Alzheimer's or aging, pain or persecution, shame or suffering, taxes or terrorists, fear or funerals. It's all gone. Nothing cursed anymore. And what's the only rightful response to all of God's goodness and grace? Well, it tells us in verse 3 of chapter 22, his servants worship him. Other translations say to serve him, but the idea is to serve through worship or worship through service. Nothing about heaven, as we've seen in previous weeks, will be boring or dull. We will honor our God in delightful, perpetual, joyful service. Two more verses, then we're going to wrap up. Verse 4 of chapter 22 contains an incredible twofold promise for the children of God. It almost seems too good to be true, but it is. First, We will see our God and experience perfect fellowship. And second, his name will be on our foreheads and we will enjoy a perfect relationship with him. Moses was not allowed to see God's face, but saw only his back. But God's people have always longed to see the Lord. Last week, remember our benediction from Numbers 6, 25 and 26? God be gracious to you and bless you and make his face to shine upon you. This is fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth. God's people will see his face and they will bear his name, meaning that they belong to him, imitate his character, and live safely in his presence forever and ever. Finally, verse 5 tells us that in the new Jerusalem, God is ever-present and his glory makes unnecessary all other sources of light. Night will be no more. There will be no light or lamp or sun. Why? Because the Lord will be their light. He, we will see his face and he will cause his face to shine upon us. But the blessings do not stop. We will reign with him forever and ever. The new Jerusalem will be, will be a place of indescribable and unimaginable beauty. From the center of it, the brilliant glory of God will shine forth through the gold and precious stones to illuminate the new heaven and the new earth. But the most glorious reality of all will be that sinful rebels like you and me will be made righteous, enjoy intimate fellowship with God, serve him, and reign with him forever in sheer joy and incessant praise. Now, what's the essence of what we will experience in heaven? What will it feel like to be here? Well, can't describe it perfectly, but I think Ephesians 2.7 gives us the best verse in the Bible to explain what the experience of heaven will feel like. Paul writes in Ephesians 2.7, In the coming ages, God will show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It will take eternal coming ages for God to exhaust the demonstration of his riches to those who are in Christ. For those riches are immeasurable. They are also riches of grace Unless we think grace 
is too vague of a concept. Paul says that this grace is in kindness. And lest we think too generically about his gracious kindness, he says it's toward us. So here's the way I want you to think about heaven. Heaven is a place where you'll get up every single morning. I don't know what this will feel like, but imagine with me. Every new day will be a fresh experience of God pursuing and pouring out on you every single way he can think to be kind to you. And it'll go on forever. And every day is better than the day before. It will be like God giving his kids one Christmas after another, opening up new joys, new promises, new glories, things they haven't seen about him or his purposes. Paul says here that it will take the coming ages to do that. That's just his way of saying eternity. To show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us. Unless we think that these riches are of the Father, but Jesus really isn't interested, Paul says in Ephesians 2, 7, that these are riches of grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In him are all the treasures. This means that God in Christ will be seen as the increasingly rich in glory for all eternity, and we will be ever more fully satisfied with increasing measures of fresh kindness every day for all eternity without pause or end. John Piper says it this way, There is no merely natural joy that we could produce on our own, even at our perfected best. During his ministry on earth, Jesus said concerning his teachings, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is astonishing. It's not his desire for us to simply have joy, not even joy in Jesus. It's a breathtaking desire, the desire of the Son of God, that we would have the very joy of Jesus himself. It's the desire that we would be made glad with the very gladness of the Son of God. Jesus will say, enter into the joy of your master. Again, he's not saying from now on your tears are wiped away and you'll be happy. He's saying, enter my joy, share my joy. He welcomes us not simply into a happy heaven, but into the very experience of his own happiness. We will be so changed at the second coming that we will enjoy the glories of Christ as much as a finite creature can with the very joy of God. This will be the eternal work of the Holy Spirit, taking the joy of the Father in the Son and the joy of the Son in the Father and making them our joy by revealing to us the glory of the Father and the Son in ever-increasing measures. This will be our all-satisfying, God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, spirit-dependent experience for all eternity. I can't wait. So I want to close. Speaking of John Piper, I want to close with my favorite poem by him, which speaks of the glories of the new heavens and the new earth. I think it'll be on the screen behind me so you can read along, and then I'll close in prayer. Here's what... John Piper imagines in poetic form upon entering the new heavens and the new earth. As far as any eye could see, there was no green, but every tree was cinder black. And we're not, by the way, we're not at the new, he new heavens and new earth yet. This is the destruction of the old creation. So don't, wait, 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 there's no black cinder stuff. That, well, so, okay, we'll get there. But he's imagining the destroyed old world first. As far as any eye could see, there was no green, but every tree was cinder black and all the ground was gray with ash. 
The only sound was arid wind like spirits, ghosts, gasping for some living host in which to dwell as in the days of evil men before the blaze of unimaginable fire had made the earth a flaming pyre of God's omnipotent display of holy rage. The dreadful day of God had come. The moon had turned to blood. The sun no longer burned above, but blazing with desire had flowed into a lake of fire. The seas and oceans were no more, and in their place a desert floor fell deep to meet the brazen skies, and silence conquered distant cries. The Lord stood still above the air. His mighty arms were moist and bare. They flung as weary by his side upon the human blood had dried, until the human blood had dried upon the sword in his right hand. He stared across the blackened land that he had made and where he died. His lips were tight and deep inside the mystery of sovereign will gave leave and it began to spill in tears upon his bloody sword for one last time. And then the Lord wiped every tear away and turned to see his bride. Her heart had yearned for thousand years, four thousand years for this. His face shone like the sun and every trace of wrath was gone. And in her bliss, she heard the master say, watch this. Come forth, all goodness from the ground. Come forth and let the earth resound with joy. And as he spoke, the throne of God came down to earth and shone like golden crystal full of light and banished once for all the night. And from the throne, a stream began to flow and laugh. And as it ran, it made a river and a lake. And everywhere it flowed, a wake of grass broke on the banks and spread like resurrection from the dead. And as I knelt beside the brook to drink eternal life, I took a glance across the golden grass and saw my dog, old Blackie, fast as she would come. She leaped the stream and almost, and what a happy gleam was in her eye. I knelt to drink and knew that I was on the brink of endless joy. And everywhere I, saw, I turned, I saw a wonder there, a big old big man running on the lawn. That's old John Young with both legs on. The blind can see a bird on wing. The dumb can lift their voice and sing. The diabetics eats at will. The coronary runs uphill. The lame can walk. The deaf can hear. The cancer-ridden bone is clear. Arthritic joints are lithe and free, and every pain has ceased to be. And every sorrow deep within and every trace of lingering sin is gone. And all that's left is joy and endless ages to employ the mind and heart, and understand and love the Lord who planned that it should take eternity to lavish all his grace on me. O God of wonder, God of might, grant us eyes to see the joy of what is yet to be. Let's pray. Father, it's a miracle of amazing grace that any of us would have this future. But in Christ, I've but scratched the surface this morning of what you have intended for us for all eternity. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has it ever entered into the mind of man what God has promised for those who love him. And so, Lord, we know that this is just an echo it's just a shadow and a dim one at that coming from a sinful man who has been redeemed but is still fallen and still broken and still longing to be made whole. 
And Lord, that's all of us in Christ. We look forward to the day of all things new. We pray that the same God who gave us eyes to see the glory of Christ would give us eyes to see again the wonders of what is yet to come. And it would anchor us. And it would give a ballast in our souls. And it would encourage our hearts in days of darkness and depression and sadness. That it would fill our hearts with thanksgiving in days that we experience some drops of joy from your hand as they come to us as foretaste of what is to come. Lord, may every gift cause us to sing praise. May every sorrow be turned to pray, prayer. And knowing that one day faith will give, give way to sight and prayer will give way to praise. And there will only be life and joy all around us forever. So Lord, encourage our hearts with this great vision of what is to come the reality that we will live happily ever after with you. May any of us who are living for this world this morning recognize what is before us, recognize the prospect of eternal joy, and may they run to Jesus for all that he has promised, knowing that this world that is to come will, will swallow up everything good about this present world and defeat everything bad about this present world. And this world is not worth living for compared to what is to come. So, Lord, grant us eyes to see, hearts to believe, hearts to feel, wills to obey, and lives that reflect this glorious hope. We ask this all in Jesus' saving name. Amen. Amen.